Thank you. All right, you guys want to hear a funny story? Yeah, okay. Um, so our administrator at the church, her name is Terry Golder, and she is here. But I won't look at her right now. Now, Terry is a, she is a formidable woman. Like, it takes a lot to rattle Terry or get her upset. And on Friday, she was in my office, and we're chatting for a few minutes, and then she walks out down the hall, and I hear a scream, and I think, oh, no. I said, what's wrong? And she goes, ah, a giant cricket. (laughs) Well, the cricket was so startled by that scream that it hopped right down one of the vents. And so if you're quiet, can you hear it? Yeah, because what happens when a cricket hops into the vents in a church is it gets amplified through the entire building. So we are going to have a cricket with us for the next, like, 17 years. Those things don't die. And um, what it means for you this morning is I want you to laugh at all my jokes because if there's dead space and a real cricket chirps, that is not good news for me. Um, Okay, my name is Dana, and uh, I'm really happy to have you here with us. And we're right in the middle of a series called Family Matters, where we've been exploring how important family is. So I want to start off today by letting you see some of my family. Um, People always say I look like my mom. There she is. And I definitely do look like my mom. It's also my dad and my sister. But anyway, we were learning how to use a selfie stick that day. Uh, um, So I definitely look like my mom, but the truth is I think mostly what I look like is her entire family. So this is my mom's whole family, her mom and dad at the front, her three, like, well, her two sisters and her, and we just all look the same, right? Like the same face shape, the same eyes, like we, anyway, that's what I look like. Now, my last name is Sproul which I got from my dad, but I also got from my mom because her family was Sproul too. Both my parents, yep, that's right, they grew up in a very small town. (laughs) Yeah, okay, but a small town had three separate Sproul families. There's, as far as we can tell, no relation. But anyway, so what would happen for me is I would go on holidays to these grandparents, Faye and Leon, and we would be walking down the street and their friends would stop us and they would go, Oh, Faye, she is a sprawl. And my grandma was heard a chuckle, and she said, well, I guess that's the only option, right? <laughs> and they'd say, no, but she's this sprawl. <laughs> like this family. It's really important to them I looked like her. So that's, that's my family. Last week, uh, Tom talked about how Jesus is demonstrating in his own life um, that God's family, our spiritual family, needs to be our first family. And that doesn't negate or exclude our human family. In fact, sometimes it gives us brand new ways to engage with them and serve them. But it does mean that we're responsible for God's family values and priorities first. Well, this week, get excited because this week we're talking about family baggage. That's right. I always get the good stuff. Um, Kevin Lehman, in his excellent book, Sheet Music, Uncovering the Secrets of Sexual Intimacy in Marriage, 
which if you want to borrow, you can pick up in the office of your single unmarried pastor. Uh, He writes this, your marriage bed is one of the most crowded places on the face of the earth. It is teeming with people, some of whom you've never met, but they're all there. Don't look behind that pillow, but be aware that your parents are lurking right underneath it. And if you think that's bad, you better also get used to your in-laws who are hiding under your spouse's pillow. Oh, and down there at the foot of your bed, that's your and your spouse's siblings. You (laughs) come... That was a great laugh back there, Carrie. You come into marriage with more baggage than you know. This baggage has formed into what I call your rule book, unconscious but very influential beliefs that you hold about how things should be done. A person's rule book governs everything about his or her life. Few of us even know we have a rule book, but we all get furious when a rule from our rule book is broken. A husband will ultimately pay for the mistakes of his father-in-law, just as a wife will pay dearly for the mistakes of her mother-in-law. You are not getting married to a person without a past. You're going to bed with a person who's been indelibly imprinted by his order of birth, her parents' style of child-rearing, and his or her early childhood experiences. Hmm. Welcome to church. What's your baggage? Uh, I want to start us off with a few definitions. Um, Most of us here are part of at least three distinct family units. Your family of origin is the family that you land in involuntarily. Most often you were born into it. You might have been adopted into it. Sometimes there's situations where whole groups of children are raised by groups of adults in institutions. But whatever it is, your family of origin is that unit that provides for you, cares for you, forms you when you're a child. It's your parents and your siblings, your grandparents, your aunts and your uncles. And then lots of us have a family of procreation. That's the family you create as adults when you marry and have or adopt children of your own. I'm using pictures of the Simpsons because I thought that they would be familiar to all of us. This is Bart when he grows up, and I think Mary's Milhouse's sister. (laughs) She looks like her family, too. Um, Okay, the family of procreation can take lots of different forms, right? There's single-parent families. There's foster and adoptive families. There's blended families. There's two-parent families. What makes it a family of procreation is that you, as the adult, are the creator of it. You took initiative to make that family somehow. And then lots of us also have a spiritual family, which is the family that you are grafted or adopted into when you become a Christian. That family is headed or created by God, and it includes all other believers. And today, we are mostly going to talk about your family of origin because those are the people that gave you all your baggage. You have zero control over your family of origin. None of us do. But that family does more to shape us, to shape how we think about ourselves, how we communicate, how we interact with the world, how we perceive things, than anything else. 
They influence everything about us, the good and the bad. And we're completely unaware that we've even been shaped because it happens when we're so small. The family of origin is our whole world when we're children, right? During the most influential time of our lives. And so whatever goes on in that world, we think that's the whole world. That's what there is. Whatever is normal in that family, we think that's normal. That's common sense, which actually, now that we're all grown-ups, helps explain why our common sense doesn't very often seem to be common to too many other people, does it? Everybody has that family of origin. My family, the Sproul family, has a story, just like every family does. And whether you think it was by chance or by design, You are born into a particular family at a particular time in history, a particular place to particular parents. And all of those things are part of the sovereign foundations of your life. That means the the things that God in his wisdom put in place to shape you when you were small. Character or personality traits that you inherited from your parents experiences, whether they were good or bad, that built courage and resilience or tenderness in you, prayers or blessings that were spoken over you when you were conceived and when you were born. My friend Susanna um, found out as an adult in her 30s that when she was, when her mom was pregnant with her, her mom prayed and offered her first child to God for his service. Well, Susanna had never known that. And then She spent her entire life in service to God. She still works in a missionary capacity. I happen to have been uh, like kind of an intuitive child, which meant that I was often blurting out random pieces of information that seemed to come from nowhere. And so one time, I was about eight years old, and I came home from school, and I said, Mom, you know, I think there's a little girl on my bus who's being sexually abused. And my mom When she was telling me the story, she says, I don't even know where you learned that word. I don't think you knew what that term meant. But in his wisdom, God put me in the care of a mother who knew tons about kids, like really knew how to trust and respect kids. And so to her credit, she didn't say, don't say things like that, don't talk about that. She went to the school. And that little girl ended up getting help. And I just think having a parent who could deal with a child like that, right, who would believe them and help them learn how to use their intuition, that was part of God's sovereign foundation in my life. Some of us were lucky enough to be born into families where our parents were deeply committed believers. And our faith was shaped, even as children. In fact, we read about that kind of sovereign foundation in 2 Timothy, where an older Christian named Paul is writing to a younger man who he's been mentoring named Timothy, and he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, faith, which first lived in your grandmother Eunice and then in your mother Lois, and now, I am sure, lives in you. Timothy received from his family of origin this heritage of sincere faith. I received this belief that my instincts were trustworthy. My friend Susanna received this commission into ministry before she was even born. 
were your sovereign foundations? What did God put in your early life as gifts that helped you become who you are? It might be a person or a word that was spoken over you. It might be the carefully chosen meaning of your name. Even a difficult experience that helped give you the compassion that you need for the work you're doing now. It's good for us to consider that, to consider how we were shaped and gifted and guided by God's work in our very early days and by the families we were born into. It is also important for us to consider the things we might be carrying from our families that aren't quite as helpful. You know, sometimes we've experienced in our families of origin infidelity or addiction or abuse or neglect or abandonment. And those create massive trauma for children. And we learn there how to handle conflict and anger and grief and betrayal and anything like that And sometimes we don't learn good patterns. And that's our baggage. That's the rule book that we talked about before. Every single family has a set of rules that have developed over time, and everyone in the family follows them unconsciously. Like, do you know the story about the woman who's teaching her young daughter how to make a roast? And so she takes the meat out of the fridge and she seasons it and she cuts about half an inch off either end and she puts it in the roast pan. And her daughter says, why do you have to cut off the ends like that? And the mother realizes she doesn't know. That's how her mother taught her. She's always done it that way. So she phones her mom. Why do you have to cut the ends off? Her mother says, geez, I don't know. That's how grandma did it. So the woman gets on the phone and calls her grandmother because she really wants to know the secret. And her grandma starts laughing. She says, oh, dear, I just cut the ends off because the roast was too big for my pan. (laughs) Every family has rules like that, that they follow without even thinking, without questioning. They don't know why. In some families, There is a rule that says never make anyone cry, right? And so in those families who have that rule, if someone does start crying, everything comes to a screeching halt and all attention turns to the person who's crying and we all try to fix it, make it better so there's no more crying. Some families have a rule that we always agree with dad, And so they all end up doing things they don't like and don't agree with because that's what dad wants. There are rules about money, rules about sex, about different cultures, about feelings, about conflict, tons of other things. What were some of the rules in your family of origin? When God is forming his people, he's forming them out of a family, and um, he gives them what is essentially the very first rule book in the Ten Commandments. He gives them some rules. And as part of that, he says this, I am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their father to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations 
of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, that is an uncomfortable passage for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because we, in modern-day North America, like to think of ourselves as fully autonomous, independent beings. I am my own person, thank you very much. I make my own decisions. And what my father and grandfather did, that has no effect on me. But the truth is that family patterns and rules are really powerful. And much of what we do, the way we act, we're not even choosing. In this excellent book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, Pete Scazzaro says this, Family patterns from the past are played out in our present relationships without us necessarily being aware of it. Someone might look like an individual acting alone, but really they are players in a larger family system that may go back three to four generations. Unfortunately, it is not possible to erase the negative effects of our history. This family history lives inside all of us, especially in those who attempt to bury it. Every single person is following rules that they learned from their family of origin. And here's the thing. I think this is really important. Most of the rules you're following, they preserved you when you were little, when you lived in your family of origin. They worked. They made life better at least. And in some cases, they literally saved your life. Right, And the problem is that now as an adult, those rules aren't saving you anymore. In fact, they're probably starting to constrict you, limiting you, keeping you from good things. Think about a child who grew up in a home with an abusive father. A father who would just fly off the handle if he got upset. Well, that child would almost certainly have learned the rule, avoid conflict at all costs. And throughout their childhood, that rule would keep them safe, right? If they disagreed with dad, but they just swallowed it, kept their mouth shut, things would be good. If they were told to clean up a mess they didn't make, just doing it without asking questions about fairness kept them safe. But when that child grows up, and has a job in a marriage of their own, that rule might not work as well. If they disagree with their spouse about a major decision, but they follow the rule and keep their mouth shut, they are going to end up with resentment and bitterness toward their spouse, not to mention they're going to be forcing their spouse to carry all the weight of decision-making. If their boss blames them for a mess at work that was not their fault, and they quietly take the blame, their reputation could be tarnished. They could end up being passed over for advancement. And so something that used to preserve their life begins instead to restrict it. We get our baggage from our family of origin, but we carry that baggage with us into our family of procreation. And you know that, of course, right? Because how often have you found yourself yelling at your kids the exact same way that your parents yelled at you, right? Or, or wishing that your wife would just be more like your mother. I know, nobody likes that. 
Those are the rules. Rearing their ugly heads. And I want you to know something. That happens when you're single too. You don't have to be married to find the rules uh, eating away at your life. So one of the rules in my family of origin, and it is, was, is, definitely still is. The rule is you are lazy if you sleep in, right? And so my entire life, even as a teenager, 6.30 in the morning, my dad would be snapping up that blind. It was his favorite thing in the summer when the blind snapped up, the light burst in, and his children cowered under their covers. Um, and then within a half hour, you could hear him pacing the hall saying things like, I mean, jokingly, he wasn't mean-spirited, but, oh, man, why is everybody still asleep? Are you guys still in bed? You're not even awake yet? He still likes to do that. Um, now, that doesn't seem like it would be a big deal, does it? But I am a night person. For sure. Even now, I'd rather be writing and working at night than in the morning. And my parents knew that about me. They could tell in high school. And they didn't force me to change. But this idea runs so deep in me that really, if you sleep in, you're lazy. Right, so a couple of years ago, I was at the cottage with my friend and her parents, and I got up and dressed and ready to go at about nine because, if I'm really being honest, I didn't want her parents to think I was lazy. Right? She already knew. I didn't want her parents to think that. Anyway, so then here's what happened. 11.15, the bedroom door opens, and her dad comes out in his pajamas to make the morning coffee. He slept until 11.15, A grown man. I never saw that before. My dad's never slept till 11.15 in his life. And I was just like, what is happening? I'm sitting on the couch in shock and awe at this family where people sleep in with no, no retribution, no shame, no mocking, nothing. And I realized, wow, I am living under this rule so powerfully that it's eroding my self-confidence. I haven't lived in my parents' house in 18 years. And still, every time I sleep in, I think, oh, you're so lazy. Some of you are morning people, and you are judging me right now in your heads for ever wanting to sleep past 9 o'clock. I know, because farmers. And... um, (laughs) I'm just saying, no, imagine what happens in yourself when you wake up in the morning having hit snooze a couple of times because it's the worst thing to get up in the world. And, and then your first thought of the day, every day, oh, you're so lazy. That eats at you, right? Well, that's the rules. Those are the rules, limiting and damaging my life, even as an adult. If you are finding your own rules hard to identify, I have a little trick for you. I was talking to the Timothy Project about this, and they had a brilliant realization. You know who knows what all your family of origin rules are, even if you don't? Your spouse. And they know them because when you walk into a family where everybody knows and plays by the same rules except you, you figure them out real fast because you're breaking every single one. Your your spouse definitely knows. Sometimes you're good friends. If you're lucky, 
your premarital counseling might have helped you identify some of the rules because we do sort of pay attention to them a little bit when we're coming up to to marriage because we're so aware that your rules are about to crash into your spouse's rules in this very explosive way. So here are some questions from a quiz that is designed for engaged couples. And I would invite you to just quietly answer these in your head and make note of whether you think your spouse has the same answer. In my family of origin, affection was A, shown warmly and often, or B, rarely shown in public. Decision-making was done by dad, mom, both parents in consultation, everyone including kids, or by default, no one made decisions. Life just happened. Privacy was A, respected, or B, a sign of secrecy and selfishness. Money was saved for a rainy day, spent only on necessities. We were always in debt. We used freely for recreational activities. All right. Are your answers the same as your spouse's? Maybe, maybe not. But it's easy to imagine what happens if your rules are not the same as your partner's, isn't it? What happens if one partner's rule is that privacy is a sign of secretiveness and selfishness, and then their spouse won't tell them the password for their phone? Suspicion, jealousy, resentment, accusation, that gets dangerous really fast. We carry those rules with us into our family of procreation. We also bring them into our spiritual family, right? We brought them here this morning. Isn't that nice? Thank you for bringing your rules. Even though we think that Christians are supposed to be healed and restored and made totally new, and we are, the rules still jump up and bite us here too. Let's take the affection one. This is my favorite one. Some of Uh, some of, I won't say us, I'll say you, some of you grew up in a home where the rule was you should always hug your friends immediately when you see them. Okay. Others have a rule that says you don't show affection in public. And those rules crash into each other right at that door at the entrance to the sanctuary every Sunday morning, don't they? And that's fine. That's totally fine. That's a small example I love when you hug me. I'm learning new rules. But they're not always always like that. We have rules like real Christians never doubt God. And that rule forces our hand in this family. Because following that rule means we have to put on a good face and say the right words. Essentially, though we don't label it this way, lying about any doubts that we have, right? And sometimes our rules about what roles are for men and what roles are for women end up shaping who can serve where in our churches. Without even thinking it, thinking of it or planning it, we end up never asking men to serve in the nursery and never asking women to serve on the property committee. Sometimes we end up never having women preachers. I feel fairly confident using that example here. Um, Or we don't have any women worship leaders. 
sometimes that's deliberate, it's a theological position, but sometimes it's more like cutting the ends off a roast, right? We just did it by default. We don't have any women who are gifted that way, which might be true, but here's the problem. The end result is that all of the children who are growing up in that church, that is the only thing they see. They think that's the way it's supposed to be because that's the way it is. And so young women don't go to seminary because they're unconsciously following a rule. And young men become uncomfortable ever learning from a woman in a spiritual setting because they've never seen that done before. That's a tragedy. That's terrible. Maybe the worst one is when we receive from our family of origin, a lot of us have this, a rule that says you must achieve to be loved. And then sometime in our lives we become Christians. And Jesus says, oh, okay, hang on. In my family, you are loved and valuable just for being you, just for being here. And we say, oh, yes, Lord, and we nod, and we might even cry because that's so beautiful, and then we just go right on back to do, 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 trying to earn the love of God. And I am telling you, that rule is choking the life out of so many Christians. Here's another quote from Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. God's desire for us to leave our families of origin is similar to the desire he had for the Israelites to leave Egypt. Although the Israelites did physically leave the land of Egypt, a great deal of Egyptian culture and thinking remained in them. And in the same way, we may choose to become Christ followers, but in reality, we continue often unconsciously to follow the commands and rules we internalized in our families of origin. The great problem, of course, is when our families' invisible rules are contrary to Christ's and when the family rules are so deeply embedded in our DNA that we cannot even discern the difference, the results can be tragic. Now, we are not stuck forever, right? It's not hopeless. The work of discipleship is the work of learning to live a new way, to live according to Christ's rules. And we can absolutely 100% do that. In fact, that is going to be next week's sermon, so same time, same place. But for today, the thing I want to leave you with is this. Until you can identify the rules you're living by, you won't be able to choose anything else. It's just not possible. You won't be able to release them or break their hold on you until you can see them for what they are. And so our work this week is to start to see the rules we're living by. And here's some application for you. If you liked the engagement quiz and you'd like to see the rest of those questions, um, it's called uh, the Family of Origin Exercise at foryourmarriage.org. And they actually have some really good writing there about the family of origin and how to, um, how to understand that. 
This one requires a little bit of homework, but if this feels like an appropriate topic for you, you might want to try creating what's called a genogram. A genogram is like a bit of an expanded family tree where you use symbols and colors and words to help identify relational patterns in your family of origin over the generations. I can tell you some more about that. If you Google the word genogram, excellent instructions come up, which I checked because I want to make sure. But it lets you see if things like... um, It lets you see if things like warmth in a marriage or uh, broken relationships between fathers and sons, if those came up repeatedly in your family. I was really surprised by what I found two and three and four generations back when I did mine. You don't want to do any of the research. That is totally fine. You can also do this. Just ask yourself repeatedly this week, What rules am I following unconsciously right now? Right? What is driving my behavior? What's forcing my hand? You are going to be surprised what just a little bit of attention will reveal. And then finally, I can't recommend this book highly enough. Lots of you are already reading it. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. Um, You can order that from Amazon. Find it anywhere. That's a great book. We can help you order it here if you want. I've been really fortunate to do lots of work over the years on my family of origin. Um, But still, every time I read a new book or a new article, I find a new rule. Or I find an old rule that I thought I quit, and it turns out I picked that bag up again. I'm living by it, and I didn't even mean to. And so as you do some digging and some reflecting this week, my prayer for you is that you will be courageous to name the baggage that you're carrying. And that as you recognize it and hold it up so that Jesus can evaluate it with you, you'll be able more and more to surrender your rules to him.